Hello and welcome to another episode of Wither the Luniversity, the uh, podcast of the Peerless Review. Uh, you can find that at peerlessreview.org. Uh, my guest today uh, has been making news um, in higher ed for decades. Uh, he's teaching professor of computer science and engineering at the University of Washington. He's a frequent writer of op-ed columns at places like Campus Reform and Quillette. Uh, he's a seasoned campus troublemaker, fired from Stanford back in the day for uh, the positions that he took on the war on drugs. A few years ago, he stirred up some more trouble with um, uh, an op-ed at Quillette called Why Women Don't Code, which got a good deal of attention. Um, and most recently, um, uh, Professor Regis took um, the land acknowledgement statement that uh, I guess UW faculty were asked to include and turned it on its head, uh, which turned into yet an another drama that he's going to talk to us a little bit uh, today about. Um, Professor Stuart Regis, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So lots to talk about, but... Um, I ask this of everybody who's who's on the program. Uh, you're in computer science and engineering. How'd you get into that? Uh, how's the field changed? What are your major interests in that field? Well, when I went to college, you know, I kind of was interested in the humanities and in in math and technical things. But I had a scholarship to the Institute of Technology, so the most humanities-like thing I could major in was math. Uh, <laughs> I took all my awards in the English department uh, and I didn't like the jobs I could get as a mathematician. <laughs> so I went to Stanford on an NSF fellowship to study computer science and got a master's degree. I found I didn't really want to work as a computer scientist either, but Stanford allowed people to teach as graduate students. And I found that I loved teaching and I happened to be at the right place at the right time. A guy who'd been there many years was leaving and I got his job, you know, uh, running the intro courses at Stanford, which I did for 10 years. Uh, that was a fun experience, you know, kind of uh, seeing this explosion of interest in computer science. I was in Silicon Valley in the 80s. I mean, that was uh, quite a quite an experience. Um, and then, as you said, I got myself in trouble uh, in 1991 by protesting the war on drugs and got fired from Stanford. Then for five years, no one would hire me. Uh, eventually, the University of Arizona took a chance on me and hired me to redesigned their intro courses. And I did that for about eight years uh, and wanted to change. Uh, the University of Washington was looking for someone to redesign their intro courses. So I came here and did that here. So that's what I've been doing for the last 18 years. Uh, as you said, I've gotten myself in trouble here too recently. <laughs> um, yeah. And and we should say you've had, this is kind of your, your specialization is pedagogy and the teaching of the basics of this discipline that you've been uh, very successful in course design uh, at a number of institutions, right? Yes. Yes. Intro courses are kind of my, my area. I've, I've done it at three universities. I've written a textbook that sells pretty well, you know, I've presented at conferences and so forth. Yeah. I need to get in on that textbook racket. I'm working on it. <laughs> um, so uh, I think we should probably um, tell our audience, although they're probably familiar, what with what a land acknowledgement statement is. Um, and, and I'll let you talk about that for a minute, and then I'll tag on, and then maybe we can get to the experience that you've had recently. 
So what well, is it's, it? It's interesting that, that there isn't really a good definition of what a land acknowledgement is. In fact, some people have said that they think that what I did doesn't count as a land acknowledgement. So, you know, what I took from what I saw as examples of land acknowledgements is that you should mention the uh, native tribes who occupied this land before buildings were built, you know, for the university, uh, that that's something you would mention to your students and you would, on a syllabus, uh, I mean, this, this started, I think, more uh, at events, public events, like you're going to see a play or you're going to, you know, listen to a concert. And they, they did this, do this a lot in Canada, you know, that they open it by doing this almost like a prayer, you know, this, where we honor the, the uh, native tribes who, who lived here before we built the theater. <laughs> so, uh, and it, it seems that you're supposed to have some kind of acknowledgement about land. And I... I recognize, actually partly because of you, and I actually want to quote you, uh, that there was a great article that you wrote uh, for New Discourses, and you said that, you know, including something like this in a chemistry class is a way of saying to the students, and I'm quoting you here, that the politics of grievance will be honored and encouraged. And I think you're absolutely right about that, that it is, in effect, a political statement that you're kind of saying we are aligned with this progressive view. There's a particular view of American history that the United States was evil, that these lands were stolen, you know, and you're supposed to affirm that. And I purposely did not. <laughs> I purposely crafted a land acknowledgement that's kind of a parody of the one that they asked me to do, where I said that they can't claim ownership of any of the land, you know, if you believe in what John Locke said about uh, land ownership. So one of the characteristics of land acknowledgement statements when they're properly executed is is that they're very pandering, right? Yes. Um, and that there is this uh, penitential repentance that's in there that, that uh, I guess the word would be self-flagellation, that we kind of need to you know whip ourselves and explain like how awful we've been and i think that this gets at the heart of what the problem with your land acknowledgement statement is is that you rejected the sort of come to jesus repentance moment that's inherent in these statements yes you're supposed to express guilt you're supposed to kind of say we should feel a moment of guilt you know for being on this land and that's what was missing from what i said Yes. And I think that's what really infuriated them. Right. The the fact that that the, the, I, the very thought that you might not feel guilty for standing on a college campus in Washington is anathema to the entire enterprise of higher education at this point. <laughs> well, or, or saying that the complex history of the interactions with native tribes can't be reduced to two sentences. <laughs> you know, if you kind of say there's nuance, there's a lot to discuss. If you if you want to say that, that's not allowed. <laughs> right. And then you you rightly acknowledge in, in the statement that you wrote that the very concept of property or how that was understood by Native American tribes is is an entirely uh, uh, complex debate on its own before right. we even get to the question of acknowledging any kind of property. Um, right. So 
let me ask you this because i've read a lot of reports about your story and we should um sort of start at the beginning and i've read conflicting statements in different reports um some things that i've read not that you've written but that other outlets have written seem to suggest that your department made it mandatory to include a land acknowledgement statement, but didn't say what that has to look like. Other accounts seem to suggest that they suggested including a land acknowledgement statement that you were not required to do so. You opted to do so and wrote one that they didn't like, which of right. those is the proper sequence of events. Right. Yeah. This is a good thing to clear up. Um, this is not a case of compelled speech. You know, that, that's a different issue. There was a, a situation at San Diego State where they were going to require the faculty to include a particular land acknowledgement. That was going to be the compelled speech case where you're required to say a certain thing that you may not believe. So I wasn't required. This was a suggestion. You know, there was a list of diversity best practices. These right. are things you should do. That included, by the way, no longer saying you guys that you should instead say y'all <laughs> seriously that I, was no, one I of the it. And that's this, one of the suggestions is that you should say y'all or folks you should refer to people as folks well, so that you don't have to say you guys this bothers me very much as somebody from the great lakes region where we all say you guys right mm -hmm. and so this is kind of one of the the contradictions of sort of the woke mindset is that in yeah. saying don't say you guys aren't you discriminating against a particular cultural background like people from the northern in, inland north of the united states who use this term adam right? adam adam we have to dismantle the patriarchy you know ah, and this is part of that yeah. of that process is realigning language so that but it's if we realign it to y'all isn't doesn't that have a legacy of ugliness in the american South? <laughs> it's, it, it, it's absurd it's it's absurd that, that you know i mean a lot a lot of this stuff is silly but one of their suggestions was include a land acknowledgement on your syllabus and I also noticed that people were starting to include them in their email signatures. So I, I, I first used this in my email signature, you know, started sending it around. In fact, that has led to me no longer being able to post messages to the AAUP mailing list because it's a moderated list and the moderators will not allow me to post a message with my land acknowledgement. And I am not willing to censor myself just because of their, you know, feelings about it. So I've had a, a series of messages all year, I, you know, censored from the, from the mailing list. But so it was a suggestion. The, you know, the issue here is viewpoint discrimination. So um, they encouraged it. Some people did it. Uh, most people did not. You know, so it was only a few faculty in our department who ended up including a land acknowledgement. But if you're going to encourage people to include them, then you have to allow the full range. You know, this I actually realized this in the fall that this is this is a vulnerability. You know, a, so this for me is part of a bigger uh, effort that I've had over the last five years to deal with what I call the equity agenda, you know, the excesses of the diversity, equity, and inclusion project. And this is just one small piece, but it seemed to me that they had miscalculated, that this is an area, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not a lawyer, but it seemed to me that in my understanding of the First Amendment was that if you're going to allow these things, then you have to have content neutral rules. You know, you you can limit speech. So as long as it's content neutral. So you can forbid all land acknowledgements or you can allow all land acknowledgements. But what you can't do is allow these progressive ones 
and then tell Stuart that he can't have his. And I, I have two constitutional law scholars, Eugene Volick at UCLA uh, and Jonathan Turley at George Washington University, who both wrote twice about my case, saying this is a clear First Amendment issue. They both yeah. said they don't like what I did. <laughs> I, I think that... Uh, John, Jonathan Turley said that I was gratuitous and peevish, and and well, and I accept the criticism. Yeah, but. I think I think that that that's evident, right? Yeah. But one of the things I I think that what I like very much about what you did is that the the woke Maoists on campus take themselves very very seriously. Yes, right? and and what you did was suggest you you poked a little fun at them. Right. Yes. And and that, I think, has a lot of potency as a form of resistance. Um, and yes. Well, and you wrote about this in your essay about this, that this is a place where it, the, the religion is showing through, you know, that that this is this is what the people who follow the woke religion you know, believe. And so I was not just saying something like you guys, I mean, which they consider inappropriate. I was saying something blasphemous, you know, that's, that's what, that's why they, they went crazy. So let's talk a little bit about how they go crazy. So you decide to put on your syllabus, your class starts. And from what I hear, you go over the syllabus, like anybody would on the first day of class. And it seems there's no problem. After that, it seems that perhaps some students emailed the chair or went to the department to complain after the fact. Is that what happened? So so I don't know whether any of my students complained. You know, um, I I did have one student ask a question. What's the labor theory of property? And I, I mentioned John Locke uh, and the second treatise of government. Um, but otherwise, it, it seemed like it was, a, it was nothing came of it, you know, that I that I had this on my syllabus. But there was a graduate student in informatics who posted a message on Twitter, basically saying you got to the to the to the Allen School where I work, saying you guys said that you believe in diversity, equity and inclusion. And look at what this awful Stuart Regis is doing. What are you going to do? And someone from our uh, school responded that they were horrified. That was the word she used, <laughs> horrified, and that it was going to be dealt with. And then I started getting emails from the director of our school, and she told me this has to go. And I said, well, are you telling other instructors that their land acknowledgement has to go? And she said, no. And I said, well, I want to be treated the same way as other faculty. Uh, And uh, she said, well, I want you to remove it. And I said, I respectfully decline. (laughs) Then she had the syllabus removed. I put the syllabus back. Kind of she she the had the syllabus removed from what, like from Blackboard or something? Well, we were online uh, that week because of COVID issues. So we, so everything was online. So oh, I had right. an online syllabus, you know, on my web class webpage, and so she, she had went it replaced. To your webpage and, and yes, 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 yes. She had, she had them replace it with something that said that there was an offensive comment in the syllabus, and so it's been temporarily removed. So um, I put back the syllabus, and then they put back the other. And they set the file protection so that I couldn't change it again. Uh, So then I stopped fighting with them about it. They eventually put up a version of it that had it whited out. You know, that section of the syllabus was just blank. Um, They, she sent an email, the director of our school sent an email to all of my students apologizing for my offensive behavior. 
and giving them three different links they could use to report further offensive behavior from me, you know, so that, you know, that, and that she was committed to having everybody feel welcome and everything. So be sure to, to report Professor Regis this way if you want to. And then two days later, she said, well, we've created an alternate section of the course where we're gonna show videos. So uh, while Professor Regis is gonna be lecturing in a live lecture hall, we're gonna be showing videos to people that were recorded last quarter. And if you would rather do that, you can switch. So they, they created this shadow version of my course and allowed students to switch. And 30% of my students switched to the other course. This is shocking to me when I heard about this, but I'm even yeah. more shocked now when I learned that in this shadow section of the course, they right. were using recordings of your lectures. No, no, it wasn't my lectures. Okay. It was a different, a different professor who had taught in the fall. Okay. In All fact, right. what I heard through the grapevine is that most of the students who switched, switched because they were hoping that that instructor was going to use his policies from the fall because he had more lenient policies about homework grading. Mm. Turns out he didn't. He decided that it was best to match my policies. Uh, anyway, so, I, think they, I think they didn't quite get what they bargained for. So let me pick your brain for just a second about this, though, because yeah. I think this is relevant to teaching during COVID. Um, when COVID started, we all across the country had to scramble and adapt our courses to how are we going to complete this. Many of us were learning new technologies and platforms that we didn't know about before. And a, a good many of those platforms or the software was owned by our universities. Um, and one thing that concerned me was when I was recording lectures at my house and things like that, I wondered what the, you know, whose property is this now if I'm using right. their technology, if not equipment, but their software um, to do this. And so I wonder what would have stopped them, like if they had those recorded lectures of yours from just saying, oh, well, he recorded these on school equipment. So you know, they're ours. We'll just show them in this other section. I mean, do you have thoughts about they that? They probably could. Yeah, they probably could. I, 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 I'm i not so worried about that. I, I tend to, I mean, I give away tons of stuff. I I, I make money on textbook sales. So, mm -hmm. you know, I, I can afford to give away lots of other stuff. Okay. Um. All right. So there's a lawsuit about this pending now. Um, yes. And I... Oh, I, well, I, let me mention another, just one more detail in terms of what happened. Yeah. Then later in the at the end of the quarter, well, they created a shadow section in spring as well. We're on the quarter system, so we've had another quarter. But they also have started a disciplinary proceeding against me where they called me in and they said that they think that I violated a certain university policy and they're starting this process that could lead to me being fired. So that's that process was started in March and it's still going on. So there's... Right now, there's a special investigative committee that is investigating complaints to decide, uh, so the dean can decide what to do. How how transparent is this process? I mean, are, do you have access to what they are discovering, if anything, and who's on this committee or anything? In the initial meeting, they described to me the complaints against me. So that was good they, they 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 gave me a good understanding it was about the land acknowledgement itself and another thing they were upset about i just i laugh because it, it just seems so funny there's a reporter at inside higher education who wrote an article about land acknowledgements the pros and the cons including quoting native scholars talking about what they liked and disliked about it and he talked about my case 
I posted this to a mailing list in our in our school that's called the Diversity Allies mailing list. I said, you guys might enjoy this article. You know, that's what we do. We post things, you know, these are resources. Read about land acknowledgements on this article. Well, that's one of the accusations against me is that I upset many people by pointing them to that article. That reporter, by the way, just is like, does they understand? I, I, I told both sides, you know, I mean, it's not like, it wasn't like a puff piece for Stuart Regis. I mean, it was a, it was a serious exploration of the issue. And right. that's one of the things that I've been accused of doing is that I hijacked the diversity allies mailing list. Uh, anyway, that was the initial thing. So the initial thing, there was some detail there, but then um, we were unable to come to terms. That was me with the director of our school. That's kind of the department level. And so it elevated to the dean. The dean has not been very transparent at all. Uh, she told me, God, it must be 14 weeks ago, we're working on putting together a committee. And I would email her every three weeks. We're working on it. We're working on it. We're working on it. You know, sounds the, to me uh, like they're not working on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> just before the lawsuit was filed, her message said, well, we've got one of the three committee members identified. But now that it's summer, things may slow down. <laughs> it took them 14 weeks to come up with one committee member. Well, now they have three committee members. They have not told me their names. I assume so they're supposed to prepare a report. And I, I would expect that I get to see that report when it's prepared, although I don't know for sure. Uh, but then, then the dean decides what she wants to do about my case. And uh, she has certain things she could do to punish me, or she can elevate it to the provost level. Boy, there's a lot of question marks there that I would, that I'd feel more comfortable if they had furnished you answers to. Um, yeah. You know, uh, especially on that report, Charles Negi, uh, you know, didn't get to see the report. And and I wonder, too, it, it, I, they should really furnish you with copies of these complaints. Um, yes. Rather than yes. just tell you what was said. Um, if I remember correctly, in Charles' case, they were investigating him for a really long time without telling him that they were investigating him. Yes. And I wondered about that myself. Was that going on? I think I, um, for me, it's like the opposite. They're not doing any investigating. They, well, they basically, I, mean, I think it's been a low priority for them and they sure. just haven't paid much attention. They were also soliciting complaints in the same way that they did with Charles case. Yes, exactly. Um, that they were going out and saying, hey, if you've got anything else you want to bring to our attention about Professor Regis, let us know. We'd love to hear it, which I think was one of the the big no-nos that UCF um, uh, did in, in the case that we were talking about. So let's say um, at, at this point, what are you suing for? So uh, it's this First Amendment issue. So... Um, what they're saying is that there's something called Executive Order 31, which is kind of a, you know, you could think of it as a hate speech type code, you know, that says that we want to create a welcoming environment. And so uh, faculty are required to, to limit what they would do. You know, they want to make sure not to make somebody uncomfortable. You know, that's basically the, 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 what this says. Um, this organization, FIRE, that's representing me, they have said that they think this is overly broad and probably unconstitutional. Um, so there's that side of it, which is kind of the hate speech side of it, you know, that we, we want to eliminate offensive comments from campus. And they think they have a legal ability to do so. On the other side, you have the First Amendment folks, you know, who say, no, uh, you, 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 can't, you, you can't discriminate based on viewpoint. 
You can discriminate on uh, time, manner, and place. I mean, that's a terminology that comes from the courts, you know, but you can't, you can't say these viewpoints are okay, these are not. Right. So um, FIRE says that it doesn't even matter what happens with this process I'm going through, that the shadow course, the apology, the censoring of my syllabus, those are all retaliation, retaliation for my political speech. And that is a violation of the First Amendment. That's the case. Excellent. And a nice thing about that is that the basic facts of the case are not in dispute. It's the legal interpretation of those facts. Yeah. I think that the the welcoming environment thing is deliberately overly broad. They know that it's overly broad because the only test of, well, was it sufficiently welcoming is whether everybody agreed that they felt welcome. So all it takes is one person to say, I don't feel like I belong. And then they could say, see, you're unwelcoming. Um, well, I, I experienced this a little bit with my issue with the why women don't code, you know, that I had asked people, I was upset about James Damore, the Google engineer who got fired, you know, for saying unacceptable things. And I, I spent a year talking to people. We had these diversity teas where we were talking about issues. And I asked people, I said, would our idea of diversity mean that we'd want to have someone like James Damore here as a student? Uh, and would our idea of inclusion mean that we'd want to include opinions like his, you know, and 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 the, the response I got was no, we we would want to make sure that our admissions procedures filtered out anyone like him wow. so that he never came here in the first place. And then they said that me asking the question constituted harassment, that it was sexual harassment for me to ask whether Demore would be welcome in our department. So they, yes. their their notion of of harassment is saying something that upsets them. Yes. Oh, absolutely. I think that this is the the predominant conception of harassment in in the American university now. Is I didn't right. like what you said. Ergo, it's harassment. Um, My feelings were hurt. Right. You know. Right. Therefore, um, I was harassed. I was, uh, you know, as an undergraduate, I was told if you get through four years of college without having your feelings hurt or getting offended, <laughs> you got ripped off. Well, that was that was the old notion of the university as a marketplace of ideas. You know, in those teas, when I would talk about the marketplace of ideas, the graduate students I talked to referred to this as this weird notion of yours of the marketplace of ideas. And I was kind of like, it's not my it's not my notion. And it's not it wasn't considered weird when I was a college student. <laughs> <laughs> or for the two centuries that preceded that. Um, yeah, exactly. Uh, so here's one thing that interests me about your case, and it, it's similar to Charles Negi's in this respect. You don't strike me as a a right winger. Um, you know, uh, you you strike me as a guy who who maybe likes to push people's buttons as I do, um, but you don't strike me as an ideologue. Um, would you say that that's accurate? And if you're not, uh, you know, like a, a, a conservative presence on campus or a right wing president or a presence on campus, why do they seem to to have it out for you? Well, because I've said I've said things you're not supposed to say, like, you know, in my article for Quillette about women, I said that women and men are different and make different choices. I mean, that that's that's obvious to most Americans, but it's not something that you're allowed to say on, on campus. So yeah, I, it's funny, you know, whenever I've got involved in these controversies, I get turned into this cartoon character. You know, when I got fired from Stanford, I was this, I was a villain to a bunch of people and a hero to a bunch of other people. And I just 
felt like I was me, you know, well, I wasn't either of those things. Yeah, I mean, it's funny, um, uh, uh, Colin Wright, you know, who writes for Quillette has a, has this uh, cartoon that people have shown uh, that uh, that uh, Elon Musk said, this is me, you know, that he basically shows over time how how the leftists have gone very far left and that has made him seem conservative, even though he hasn't changed very much. So I'm more libertarian. I mean, libertarians are thought of as being closer to conservative points of view. Republicans are more friendly to libertarian ideas than Democrats are. So I kind of have a, you know, I, I guess you could say there's a reason why people would perceive me as conservative. But, you know, I I, I have my own ideas about various things, you know, it's but it, it has become considered conservative, the things that I believe. So one thing uh, that you are a faculty contributor at Campus Reform, uh, yes. a website online, and you have written uh, there uh, a, an argument that says that we need to defund LGBT activism on campus. This surprised me because you, I don't think, have, have ever concealed the fact that you are also a gay man on campus. No, I was openly gay in 1979. <laughs> okay, so so this is this is really interesting to me. I mean, uh, because for the most part, the LGBT people in academia are great champions of sort of the institutionalization of LGBT activism. Um, let me see if I have your argument right. Your argument is is that a support for LGBT students is important on campuses, but that it has become a, a, a more or less a bureaucratic money suck. Is that is that accurate? Even worse, it's it's there, there's an ideological filter for people who are going to be hired in these positions. So I pointed to uh, we were hiring a new director of our Q Center on campus, and they wanted someone who understood intersectionality, who could, you know, basically somebody who could be a progressive activist on campus. And I just don't think that's something that that university taxpayer funds should go to pay for. I mean, if you want that, then then raise the money for it. You know, you could, you know, that'd be fine. As a libertarian, I'm I'm happy to have people raise money for their political causes, but I don't think you should be taking general university funds and saying that we need to champion progressive, you know, politics in order to to support our our uh, lesbian and gay students. Well, this is a big way that universities enforce the political group think is even sort of uh, jobs in the professorate are described in ways that, in terms of expertise research interests that would filter out candidates who who might not conform to the the orthodoxy of campus leftism um, well that's certainly happening with us with our faculty hires we have a new policy where you have to make a dei statement and that's considered equally with research and teaching those are the big three now wow. is the diversity is the third and if you don't have appropriate attitudes then you're not going to be hired uh, we just narrowly defeated the university was going to impose this on all cases of tenure and promotion. I mean, currently it applies to new hires, wow. but this was going to be for, for all cases of, of promotion and tenure that you had to have a DEI statement. And there was an argument on the AAUP mailing list. People were saying, this is like loyalty oaths. You know, this is compelled yes. speech. You're making me say various things. And their response was, oh no, because it's not good enough to just say you believe in DEI. You have to demonstrate what you've done. You yes. have to be an active participant. 
yes, you know, that in, was, in, in DEI activities. That was uh, uh, someone I went to graduate school with uh, who, who works at a prominent research university now, um, you know, said on Twitter uh, that um, it is not sufficient, you know, like that he would uh, not take any DEI statement seriously that doesn't have the evidence of the doing also. Exactly. Um, uh, well, it's very clear. I wouldn't be hired today. I just oh, wow. if I if I was honest about about my my point of view, even though I have championed diversity my entire career and I've won awards for it. <laughs> but the you know, the it's funny, this this proposal involved eliminating the terminology that said that you were working towards equal opportunity. That's not that's not uh, anymore something that gets you credit. You have to work for equity. Right. Which is which is the way that you signal your affinity for cultural Marxism, you know, is the is the equity language. It, it really is a, sort of a mastery of an idiom. There's a certain uh, knowing the right words to say is right. what earns you access. Um, so let me ask you this, because I'm curious. Back in 1985, to the extent that there was any uh, support for LGBT students on campus at that time, what did it look like? Did it just consist of sort of student volunteers, that that kind of thing? So um, there was nothing at Case Western Reserve where I was an undergraduate. It was great disappointment to me. Before I left Case, I organized a dance on campus for gay people. And that was that was. Uh, quite an experience, you know. They, uh, yeah, I, I remember putting up a poster for it and, uh, on, on the front door of a dorm, and a guy was, you know, about to go in the door. He looks at the poster and he just grabs it, you know. He just kind of crumbled and threw it at my feet, you know. Nice. <laughs> that was like, okay, I guess I know what you think. Anyway, uh, oh. so I started a gay group at Case before I left. Stanford was in much better shape. So Stanford had a gay and lesbian uh, a group on campus and the university had given them a large space at what was called the old firehouse. So, and I was a, I was a student activist. I, I participated in a lot of stuff. Uh, I was on the student presidential search committee when we were picking a new president, you know? So uh, uh, yeah, there was a lot going on at Stanford. It was all volunteer work. There, there was no, nobody who was paid. Well, we put on dances. We put on, we put on Gay and Lesbian Awareness Week, you know. So I think the story illustrates just how how wild the change on campus is. That 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 story of somebody ripping down the, the flyer right in front of your face versus yes. where we are now. It's it's this is why I think this is a delicate issue. Is because I think that people on college campuses are aware that there were real forms of intimidation and discrimination on college campuses only a short time ago, but it's almost like there's just been a wild overcompensation, right? That now sort of makes it look very much like the sort of, what's the word? I, I guess uh, chauvinism that it was meant to displace. Um, do you see that on campus or, you know, um, I, I, I guess I'm, I guess what I'm asking is, can the DEI wing of universities be pried loose from the LGBT activism wing? Or are those two things necessarily one and the same? I think it's complicated. You know, you have um, a lot of 
lesbians and gay men are concerned about things that are going on in support of the trans community. So I'd say that there's something being worked out within the, the broader community there. You know, Andrew Sullivan has written about this, for example, Open the Gay Man has written about his concerns. Um, uh, Katie uh, Herzog, who's, who has a podcast, has written about this. She's a lesbian. She's written about this, uh, uh, talked about this quite a bit. I think that, I think a lot of, a lot of gays and lesbians just kind of, feel disconnected from this progressive politics, kind of what's going on. I, I, I've had friends who tried to go to the gay center, the Q center on campus and said that they, they would never go again. You know, that that the posters on the wall and the, you know, kind of the their feeling that, you know, it was almost like you were at a revival meeting, you know, for progressives. It was, yeah. it was like a rally for for, ben, for Bernie Sanders or something. It does seem that, that the L and the G have very much been pushed aside in favor yes. of the T, which seems um, to be skewing younger and also weirdly straighter. Um, yes. If if I was going to say um, from well, one of the things Andrew Sullivan said was that uh, if you know that he thinks that if he were, were growing up today in America, that he might very well wonder whether he was a girl. You know, that that he did, you know, there, there's a, there was a classic study that was done of origins of homosexuality. And what they found for male homosexuality was that the number one predictor was at age five, boys who didn't feel like other boys. You know, that so it's it, it could be very confusing for a young gay boy to think, well, maybe I'm really a girl, you know, and you you pursue that. So this is a, this is going to take a long time for us to work out. This is this is amazingly controversial. Yeah. Uh, and Katie is, is Katie has gotten more grief over her comments about trans stuff than anything else she's ever done. It's very interesting to watch the women's movement contend with the the uh, trans movement. Yeah. Um, yeah. And in a lot of ways, it's splitting splitting the feminist movement down the middle. Yes. Um, which is uh, maybe needed. There's been a lot of. Uh, um, monolith uniformity in that sphere for for some time um boy that's fascinating i think also like the 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 attractiveness of transness today is that you know the way that this discourse works online is that if you feel uncomfortable in your body right that this is a sign right. of of your transness and in fact as anybody over the age of say 20 knows that's what adolescence is, is feeling uncomfortable in your body. Uh, yeah, what is adolescence about? But kind of feeling feeling like I'm trying to find my place in the world and now I'm questioning everything. Exactly. And in a, in a context where that very ordinary pubescent feeling becomes sort of the proof positive that, you know, like deep inside your sex is different than the one you were assigned at birth is uh, it's, it's a very interesting phenomenon rhetorically. Yeah. So let's transition to sort of broader questions related to the institution of higher ed at large. You've been kicking around for 40 years at all sorts of different universities. You've seen lots of things and lots of changes. Um, would you agree that we're in a pretty dire spot right now in terms of what American higher ed looks like? Yes, absolutely. Uh, I what What's harder for me to figure out is 
is the university a source or is the university an effect? You know, I mean, is this stuff going on because of what's going on in the broader society? You know, because there's an awful lot of concerning things happening uh, in the in the you know, terms of polarization and you know the inability to to have media that we trust. You know, there's a lot a lot going on in the broader context as well. I, I almost feel like, well, uh, you know, there 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 are. There was a big shift sometime around like 2010. Uh, Martin Gurry has written about this, The Revolt of the Public, I think he, he calls his book, uh, that he, he talks about how there was a shift away from central authority, you know, and so the, you know, the things like the Arab Spring, you know, uh, uh, Occupy Wall Street, all sorts of things. And it almost seems to me like in the, in the rejection of traditional uh, uh, values, that people now are searching for other values and the progressives have kind of rushed in <laughs> and they have an agenda. They have a set of values that they want to, they want to kind of uh, uh, pursue. Are those values uh, conducive to open inquiry and, and learning? Not at all. No, they, they basically, you know, it's a Marcuse's essay about repressive tolerance. You know, they, they don't think that the marketplace of ideas exists. There's, you know, because, the dominant ideas have an unfair advantage. And so therefore you have to silence the dominant ideas. You have to not platform someone like Stuart Regis and you have to elevate other voices. You know, you have to, you have to discriminate in order to create a more fair environment. You know, Kendi writes about this. It's a crazy time. I mean, you know, it's a, basically they reject everything, including the idea uh, of uh, objective reality. You know, this was something that I, I argued uh, with one of our faculty members, you know, that I was I was talking about some scientific studies. And she said, well, science isn't, you know, science is not objective. Science is male science. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think that um, one of the, the strange things about the re repressive tolerance thing um, is is just how oblivious it is to what ideas are out there um i think it knows what to oppress but it it doesn't know the range of ideas it pr pretends that the range of possible ideas are much narrower than it otherwise would be so in terms of if, if the situation is dire and the values that hold on campus are not values that are conducive to open inquiry or learning can we save it what can be done if we can't save it you know, what do we need to do in in response to the fact that it's unsalvageable? You have ideas about these things? I actually don't in the sense that, you know, I don't see the good solution. Uh, there was a, a meeting of the Heterodox Academy in Denver in, in June, and they were asking Jonathan Haidt, they were like, you know, you who wrote this book about happiness, you seem to be pretty down. <laughs> And, and dark these days. And basically Jonathan said, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, he, he's, he's pretty pessimistic about things. I guess that, you know, I'm trying to hold on to a few things. And for me, free speech is this thing that, and I, I'm actually very pleased that the land acknowledgement thing has come about because it lets me latch onto that free speech issue. I think it's, you know, if, if they win in terms of limiting what can be said on campus, if they win that argument, or if they even just win over students who think, I shouldn't have to take a course from a professor whose political ideas are different than mine. You know, I think that's a horrible idea. 
So I'm going to stay and fight for free speech and, and, you know, say what Jefferson always said. If you don't like what people are saying, then you should say things, you know, to counter them. You shouldn't try to silence them. Just have your own speech. You know, that, that that's those are the kinds of ideas that I want to champion. Uh, I'll push for it as long as I can, you know, might get fired along the way. So your idea then is to to stay where we are, so to speak. Those people who still hold on to the older values of, of higher ed who are still here should stay and work to 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 advance the cause of those issues and in whatever way we're still able to do. Well, and I think that the courts are going to be important. So, you know, we went through this before in the late 80s and early 90s. I had a, that, a lot of bizarre things. So that Stanford instituted a hate speech code. I had lots of interesting arguments with people at that time about, about speech. And uh, the courts, you know, basically these things took years, but, you know, they struck down almost all of those hate speech codes that were instituted by universities. I think FIRE recognizes this and they just kind of know they've, they've got a lot of work to do. You know, uh, cases like mine, you know, uh, we, we hope that we can get the university to admit that they were wrong and that this executive order 31 probably should go. It's probably not compatible with the first amendment. So there may be a lot of court cases and it could take years for them to work their way through, but it worked before in terms of helping to push back the tide, you know, of what they were doing. Would you say that the, that the tide is further in now than it was back in the 80s and 90s? I guess what I'm asking is, is like there were parallels to the situation we're in back there. Was it as bad back then as it is now? I think that it's it, it was not as bad back then as it is now. Uh, so I think it is worse now. But there also was less awareness. It was totally within the university. You know, there was no support from outside. And today we have a lot of political support from people outside of the university. Mm -hmm. There, they, they, uh, uh, So um, Jordan Peterson tweeted about my uh, uh, original Quillette article. I think that's one of the reasons people paid attention to it. He said a funny thing. He said, the hate facts are strong with this one. <laughs> I didn't know what hate facts were, so I had to look it up. Hate facts are things that everybody knows are true, like men and women are different, but they're things that the progressives go crazy over that you're not allowed to say that. I think we've reached a point where an awful lot of Americans are fed up with what's happening on college campuses. They, they're like, no, that's stupid. I mean, you know, we've got to do a land acknowledgement and it has to be of the right form or you're going to get fired? No. So I think that, you know, the external support is there's more of that, I think. But it's part of this bigger battle in the in the the uh, the broader society that we're kind of having these these partisan fights. I think that a lot of parents are getting hip to what's happening on campus. Yes. And a lot of them are just saying, forget it. We're not we're not going to do it. You know, um, if you look at enrollment trends in the United States in four-year colleges, it seems we peaked a couple of years ago. And uh, I kind of hope that uh, the parents who are saying that's not for us, that's not for my kids, uh, will be enough, there will be enough of them to maybe create some alternative structures out there that are not the bloated uh, bureaucracy of, of the public university in 2022. Well, what we could hope for is that they have their budgets cut and then they decide they have to get rid of all their DEI staff members. 
boy, <laughs> that would hurt. They'd get they'd get rid of the English department before they get rid of the DEI office. That um, could be. Uh, Grievance studies will go on. So, I I have read that you know you had a lot of fallout from uh, why women don't code. And I think that one of the the sort of ways that you were punished, not punished um, for that by the institution is that rather than a typical three-year contract that they would give to a teaching professor, they gave you a one-year conditional contract. Um, has this new episode uh, complicated the... Um, you know the the terms of your employment there or are you are you at this point you're but year by year well so you're right i i'm the only faculty member who was offered a continuing appointment of just one year it's not unusual to offer a a, a new faculty member a one-year appointment it's kind of we'll see how it goes and then decide whether but once you're permanent you know then they tend to do three 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 so they did a one-year extension for me they kind of put me on probation i guess i didn't do anything it was partly covid you know there wasn't a lot going on you know but they gave me a three-year extension so i just completed the first year of my current three-year contract so i have two more years on this contract very good i have no idea what will happen what will happen after that well yeah maybe by then you've got a legal victory which will be a strong incentive to provide you with a three-year contract or more um Boy, this is great. Uh, so when do you find out? Uh, do you know the timeline for um, the proceedings with with your case? Or is nope. it just kind of on hold? It'll probably over the next year or so will unfold. Well, these things have taken years for other faculty, you know, so uh, I, I they, they haven't told me. Uh, okay. I would think that the pressure of the lawsuit, well, it's going to make them be very careful and that'll slow them down a bit. But I also think that they're going to feel that they can't just ignore it, that they that they have to move it forward. Yeah, but we'll see. And I think they, that, they, they don't talk to me about it. They don't tell me about it. What will probably happen is that as the, the university gets further and further from the actual episode, they start increasingly second guessing the decisions that they made in that moment um it may never come to court uh might be but you know they show no signs of it yet you know the the university spokesperson is saying that they're confident that they have not violated my first amendment rights so oh, at least well, so far they they're, the official line is you know no <laughs> he's he, he should be punished well we'll see they they'll, they'll they'll feel the pressure a little bit um yeah. Stuart, it was great having you. I wish you the very best with your case. And and um, I I think that your provocations are playing an, an important role. And thanks for uh, all of them over your time in higher ed and for the attendant suffering that they've caused you. Well, thanks for giving me a chance to discuss it in, in detail. This was a, a really interesting conversation. It's fun. Thanks again. All right.